Welcome to Matthew Felix, the radio episodes, Travelers on Travel. I'm Matthew Felix, author of the books With Open Arms, short stories of misadventures in Morocco, and the new Porcelain Travels. In February of 2018, what is now my Matthew Felix On Air video podcast began as an internet radio program in downtown San Francisco. The radio episodes, Travelers on Travel podcast, feature segments from that radio show, in which I talk travel with travel writers, journalists, photographers, and filmmakers. I hope you like the show. And don't forget to check out the current video podcast incarnation, Matthew Felix On Air, available here, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. Thanks for listening, and talk soon. Hey, check out my new book, Porcelain Travels, Humor, Horror, and Revelation, In, On, and Around, Toilets, Tubs, and Showers, an Amazon number one new release in four categories, including travel humor, and winner of Gold for Humor in the 2018 Solas Awards for travel writing. You can also check out Porcelain Travels' companion podcast of the same name, which comprises readings from eight stories, including two recorded before a live audience. Porcelain Travels the Book is available in paperback and ebook on Amazon and other online retailers. Erin Bird, Bird, oh God, I already said her name wrong. Erin Byrne, and it's not a hard name. I guess I'm still thinking about the birds I saw in the trails. But Erin uh, Byrne is the, and Wings. I mean, her book's called Wings, so you can't blame me. Erin Byrne is the author of Wings, Gifts of Art, Life, and Travel in France, editor of two vignettes and postcards anthologies, one for Paris and one for Morocco. And she is writer of the Storykeeper film. Erin's travel essays, poetry, fiction, and screenplays have won many awards, including three Grand Prize Solas Awards, the Forward Indies Book of the Year, an Accolade Award for Film, and the Pinnacle Achievement Award. Erin has taught writing at, at uh, Shakespeare and Company Bookstore in Paris and Book Passage Salcedo, and on deep travel trips. As I also already mentioned, Erin is host of the Lit Wings event series at Book Passage, which features writers, photographers, and filmmakers. Erin was recently named Travel Writing Curator for the Creative Process Exhibition, which was launched at the Sorbonne and travels to the world's leading universities. Her screen... Pay, her screen Maybe I shouldn't be doing my radio show today. I can't even I can't even talk. Uh, can you just do this? Can you just read this? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, her screenplay Siesta is in pre-production in Spain, and she is working on a novel set in the Paris Ritz during the occupation. Welcome, Erin. Thank you. So we met because I went up to you after an event where I saw you speak, and I went up to you because over the course of your talk, I learned that your writing and other works focus largely on three places that are largely the focus of my work, which of course is Spain, France, and Morocco. And it turns out you've just come back from two of those places, Spain and France. And my relationship with France uh, began when I was an exchange student in Spain. And that's when I began learning French. And it's also the first time that I went to France, oddly enough, as a pseudo Spanish student on an exchange with a French family. Uh, so I got to France through Spain. But I mention that because for you, it was sort of the opposite. You got to Spain via France, and you got there as the result of an unlikely, very powerful experience that you recount at the end of your Wings book. So can you tell us the short version of that story? Because it's, like I said, it's pretty powerful. Yes. Thank you for having me. Thanks Matthew. for being here. Uh, first of all, I just like to say the quote that comes at the beginning of Wings, because yeah. everything I do is kind of related to that. Sure. It's a quote by Joseph Campbell. 
If what you are following, however, is your own true adventure, if it is something appropriate to your deep spiritual need or readiness, then magical guides will appear to help you. If you say, everyone's going on this trip this year and I'm going to, then no guides will appear. Your adventure has to be coming right out of your own interior. And if you are ready for it, then doors will open where there were no doors before and where there would not be doors for anyone else. And you must have courage. It's the call to adventure, which means there is no security, no rules. So I spent... I just have to say that you touched on about 10 of the themes that we'll be talking about <laughs> well, today just, because there's so much good stuff there and yeah. it's so relevant to your work yes. and it's, I mean, yeah, and it does, it yeah. just hits the nail on the head with regards yes. to so much that is essential to the creative process yes. and throwing yourself into it and taking the risks. So you were going to say. It's quite true and it's exactly what, what has come true on my travels. So I spent about eight or 10 years traveling to France. And all these magical guides cropped up. Uh, Henri Cartier-Bresson, uh, Vincent Van Gogh, Saint-Jean-Vievre, Coco Chanel, Salvador Dali. They would take me places and teach me, teach me things. And my main magical guide for France was Winged Victory. Mm-hmm. And in my book, she sort of guides you through France. Who is Winged Victory? Winged Victory of Samothrace mm-hmm. is in the Louvre at the top of the Darius staircase, the statue. And at the end of my book, she comes alive and she tells me to go to Spain. Now you say at the end of your book, but this is based on something that really happened to you or this is... It was my sense. You know, I kept, Spain kept cropping up. I had met this filmmaker and done this documentary with with him and these other short films and we had always wanted to make this film in Spain and I had been to Spain once and written a story about a bullfight that basically took me seven years to write. Which we're going to touch on. And... um I, I always had this feeling about Spain, but I really felt like, especially when this book was nearing its completion, not that my time in France was done, but just that it was time for me to take that deep way I experienced that country and do that somewhere else. But you felt that largely because of this interaction that you're having, that this this intense moment that you're having in the Louvre with yes, Victory. I felt like she was shooing me away. Yeah. And at first I was a little bit hurt. Interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh-huh. But I did. I just I just felt like not that I had learned I mean, I don't think you can ever learn everything there is to learn about a place. But uh the way that I experienced France with these characters from the past and characters in the present and odd connections and uh, strange secrets of the place. Um, it just felt like it was time for me to experience that elsewhere. Right. And so you did. So you went to Spain. Yes. You've been to Spain several times. Yes. Most recently, you went to Spain. Uh, actually, you had three main reasons, I think, that you went to Spain. But the first thing I want to talk about on this most recent trip is you led a deep travel workshop, yes. uh, writing workshop specifically. 
And the theme was described as you were going, you were taking the, your fellow writers and fellow, I don't know if there were artists and other photographers and things, but you're, I think it was mainly a writing workshop, In Search of Lorca's Duende. Yes. And I know that this is a theme that you're just very passionate about and that permeates a lot of your work and your personal experiences as well. So, but before we talk about Duende, just for people who might not know who Lorca is, can you just give us a quick glimpse into who Lorca is? And then I would like to know um, more about this concept of Duende and why it spoke to you so, and speaks to you so strongly and became the, the focus of the workshop. Okay. Federico Garcia Lorca is a poet um, who actually was executed during the Spanish Civil War, but he had this concept um, he, he talks about two different, uh, sort of two different types of duende, which we, we delved into this when we were there. Uh, it was a group of writers and photographers, and the trip was organized by Anna Elkins and Christina Ammon, who planned the most intimate, um, wonderful trips. I'll we had Larry Habiger on yeah, here talking about, yeah. right before he went to Morocco, yes, talking about yes. deep travel. And they really tailored this trip to Duende, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but they're just remarkable. So um, anyway, the two sort of different meanings that Lorca, Lorca, he, he knew this Spanish concept and he took it and harnessed it for his work. And then he analyzed it creatively and kind of offers it to, to us, we artists, to use it in our own work. And that's how it worked with me. I learned about it. And you can really you can really get the gist of it by reading this little tiny book that's a collection of his talks called In Search of Duende. Um, basically, it's the kind of uh, force or spirit in Spanish people that they just have. And it's also something that we all battle. So it's the dark thread. It's, it's the, um, it scorches the heart of Nietzsche, he says. Uh, it comes up from the soles of your feet. And it's, it's, it's really the dark thread that runs through our lives, the things that we battle with. And so I started reading his, his theory on this and just started being maybe a little more honest in my work. It helped me to do what my great mentor, I call him my guru, uh, Tim Cahill says, is don't pretty it up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it just, um, yeah, and this group of writers who we had in Spain was just so ready to, they were so brave and honest about their dark sides and, um, anyway, Lorca says that it's most prevalent in flamenco, the music, Hondo, and the bullfight. And so we really explored those three areas. And Anna and Christina had planned these experiences. Um, gosh, I, I don't even want to say watching flamenco mm -hmm. because it's so kind of interactive in the spirit. But they had, we had three different flamenco per performances that we watched, and you could feel it come up from the soles of their feet. You could feel how they harness this dark energy. Uh, and, and the same with the guitar music and even the clapping and... So I want to read a quote here because you've touched okay. on something a couple times okay. that this quote also touches on that's, that was interesting to me. So 
Uh, traveling to Buenos Aires, this is from Wikipedia, quote, traveling to Buenos Aires in uh, 1933 to give lectures and direct the Argentine premiere Blood Wedding, Garcia Lorca spoke of his distilled theories on artistic creation and performance in the famous lecture, Play and Theory of the Duende. This attempted to define a schema of artistic inspiration, arguing that great art depends upon a vivid awareness of death, yes. connection with a nation's soil, and that's why you keep saying it's coming up from our feet, yes. coming up from our feet. So I thought that mm-hmm. that was interesting. And an acknowledgement of the limitations of reason, which I love because that's oh, one of the main yeah. themes of my book mm-hmm. that I wrote in Andalusia. Exactly. Um, so any thoughts on, you've kind of touched on the connection with the nation's soil and this idea that it's coming up from the ground. Mm-hmm. Anything else to say on that? Or I also liked these other two significant elements here, this awareness of death mm-hmm. as being significant. Yes. And then the limitations of reason. Well, the awareness of death, you know, he he actually also says in a dash of the diabolical. Oh, nice. But (laughs) but he talks about how Spanish culture, he says something like with death, other cultures close the curtains. Such as our own. In Spain, we open them. Mm -hmm. And you can tell this and and the bullfight is partly a pantomime of that. Um, But he... um, Lorca... He So the awareness of death, limitations of reason. He had it so much in his work. Yeah. And and I think especially as Americans, we need a bit of hand holding and help to put it in ours. Duende or this awareness of death both. or all of the yeah, both. all of both. both. Right. Both. Right. Uh, we're supposed to pretty it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just started watching um Six Feet Under. Oh, which I, I know is like it. 30 years old or something, <laughs> but I'm way behind on all these things because mm-hmm. I only watch television when I'm house sitting for people and sure. I binge watch these things I've heard other people talk about. And they talk a lot about that because it takes place in a mortuary. I don't know if you know right, this, right? right yes, Six I feet do. under, yeah. And, and you know, so I, I was thinking about that recently just, just in watching this television show, just this idea and this fear of death and how, you know, we just had someone die in our family and I just, it would, made me think that much more about it. And, this idea of being put in a box that protects us from the mm-hmm. elements and protects our this body that we've left behind. And because we don't, we don't want to face death. We don't want to face our connection to the earth that that entails and all these. And it, it is interesting. You go to a lot of these Mediterranean countries in particular, no doubt other others as well, but since I'm more familiar with those, where it's this outpouring of grief and it's this public display. And it's they have these rituals that are embodied in their culture that help and overtly acknowledge this reality that is part of reality of all of our existences. And um, I'm not sure why that's a whole other conversation, why we and a lot of the Western countries have such difficulty with that. Well, they're not afraid of sadness. Yeah. People in Spain are definitely not afraid of the dark, Uh literally and (laughs) figuratively. Yeah. The lights went out a lot when I was living in the village, (laughs) actually. Well, they're definitely up all night. Yeah. Um, but also, when we were in Spain, Anna and Christina have this incredible gift of finding people who are the essence of the place. Mm-hmm. And so our people who were helping us learn about Granada, uh, one was Azahara Flores, nice. who is a woman who had been a flamenco dancer. And she just, oh, I just fell in love with her. I mean, she just is so... Um, so brimming over with this passion, this spirit, 
And also we had a Pedro Fernandez Ramirez, who's just one of my favorite people on earth. He lives <laughs> in the Bay Area. Yeah. Pedro. But he's from um, there. He's from there. And both of them do have that spirit that comes up that is just in them. But they really were also helping us to understand this connection to the dark. And that connection to the dark, let's go one step further with that. Because you say in, I don't know, I read everything that I could find about you. So somewhere you said, and usually I know where I found this. I can't remember where I found this quote. But you said, quote, I believe the dark gives meaning to the light. Yes. Uh, Thus I look for the duende of a place by attending to all feelings within me without focusing on them as my adventure has to come has to be coming out of my own interior. But tell me specifically, because we're talking about the dark and the light, the dark and the light. But I, I think that really sums up what kind of the kernel of this, this part of our conversation, the dark gives meaning to the light. So tell us about that for you, what that means and how that's related to Duende. Okay. I'm going to back up a little bit. You mentioned finding the Duende of a place. Mm-hmm. Uh, another of my favorite mentors is Phil Cousineau. And he said to me years ago, he started sort of challenging me, find the duende of that place. So I remember I was going to Paris and he was like, okay, find the duende of Paris. And I ended up finding the duende of Paris in Notre Dame Cathedral, which is Good pretty much the opposite. <laughs> well, it's sort of the opposite of most people find happy peace there. But I yeah. think it has this kind of sinister side. There are lots of gargoyles. And so, yes. And so, um, to me, I, I kind of did spend a few years going to France thinking that thinking that everything in Paris in France was positive and good and lovely and beautiful and elegant and delicious. And right. That happens to a lot of people, and, right? Yeah. And actually, um, I find out, and this is the process that sort of, uh, I went through in this book wings is that what I found there was what I needed and the parts of uh, French culture that were so illuminated for me were parts that were missing from my own life. Mm-hmm. When I first started going there, I really didn't have any kind of creative life. I just started writing. And and so that missing those artistic moments and people, that is hard. And you can't find your way to what you need without going through you know, without touching on that need. So also... And just, stepping into the darkness. Yes. And uh, and so also, you know, being in these places, and, and we'll talk, I think, more later about uh, some when we have a difficult adjustment to a place, a, pace, a place that taps into all of our duendes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the way to transformation. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So along those lines... Because this was my next question, and that's a nice segue, or not even a segue, but an extension of, you know, in the quote that you read by Campbell at the very beginning, or that you recited, rather, she recited that from memory, impressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You talked about there was a reference there to no security. There was a reference to needing to have courage. And again, this, this notion of needing to take risk. So that's why we're afraid of the darkness, right, is because it is uncomfortable. Inherently, going into the darkness is uncomfortable, but we can't go through this transformation that you just mentioned or this creative flourishing or, again, transformation without that, without stepping into the unknown. Because the darkness is unknown, which is why it, why, so why it makes us uncomfortable. So can you speak to that aspect of 
Duende and you're stepping into the unknown and you don't have security, you don't know what's going to come of it and why it makes us uncomfortable and why that's ultimately beneficial to the right. to ourselves, to the creative process, to all of that. Well, the line before that in, in Campbell's quote is that doors would open where there were no doors before. And Thoreau has a similar quote. Which yes. is so strange. And that's kind of how life is, where these things open up that are almost mystical. I mean, I think just about every story maybe I've ever written, including my film stuff and my novel, is full of mystical elements. Right. I would say they're not necessarily almost mystical. They might just be mystical. Right. I think they are. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yes. And so these things turn up. And, and I have an interesting example of it. Um, there's a story in Wings called Wise Beams. And it's a, basically a story about the 17th century ceiling beams in my apartment uh, where I stay on Ile Saint-Louis and these stories that they told me. Mm -hmm. They told me stories about a girl waiting for a letter from her soldier from the Great War, about um, the revolution, a man holding his newborn baby and his wife has just died and he's about to go join the revolution. And... Um, Camille Claudel, who was a sculptor who lived on Ile Saint Louis, appears, and um, it's all this these vignettes through history that the beams told me. So, what does that mean to you? The beams told you. They told me the stories when I was in these places. They told me the stories, and I wrote them down. And when I am the last time I was in Paris, I did an event, and this was through uh, Weiss. Weiss, I always want to say it the French way, Weiss, which is their kind of writing collective and the Paris Alumni Network. And I did an event for all three books. And I, I, was, I was so excited because I was in Paris and I got to read Wise Beams because people here in this country do not understand the beams. People in Paris are like, that's what they told you. Here's what they told me. Really? And they don't look at me and say... You're crazy. The ceiling beams... Right. When, I, when people here are like, uh, the ceiling beams told you stories... No, and that's why I asked or, you the question, right? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. why I asked or you the question. Or Henri Cartier-Bresson appeared alongside you when you were walking around Paris, or... Here's the number um, of my shrink. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and so in that culture, which is, which is part of the reason why I feel like I fit there, uh -huh. it's perfectly acceptable. So it's a little bit scary... That to me was almost the scariest story. That and the bullfight story, the scariest story that mm -hmm. written because they were so kind of off the yeah. <laughs> chartered territory. And yet you did write the story and you have put it out there for the world. And so how did that feel? It felt awesome. And and I love talking to people about it because I love because once you actually take yourself seriously when these things happen, you find that people start taking themselves seriously. And pretty soon they're telling you what the uh, jackrabbit told them on the trail. <laughs> you know, and those yeah. are the magical guys. No, this has been my experience because I've had a lot of, how would I characterize these experiences? Let's just say experiences of this sort yes. where um, non-rational experiences or experiences that can't be defined by logic or reason and that, quite frankly, I'm not comfortable talking about with most people. And and yet, once in a while, I will go there. And, and actually, my fourth book is going to be about a lot of this stuff. And, and I've already started writing it. But what I found is a lot of these experiences, like the beams talking to you, I would think, well, I can't really 
tell people about that because they're going to think I'm crazy. But then let's say you, and some of them do, and that's fine. But so many of them who you would think are going to think you're crazy have similar experiences that they haven't been sharing. And then all of a sudden we realize once again, it always comes back to this for me. We're all in this together and we're all having these experiences that it's about reason is a relevant, important tool for our day-to-day lives. But we also have this other side of our existences Mm -hmm. as human beings and as spiritual creatures. And it's both. Yes. It's not that we just go running off and we lose ourselves in spirit so much that we lose contact with our earthly existence. But it's also not that we get so lost in programming and our tech gadgets that we, and, and it's only reason. And if we can't come up with a logical explanation, then it must not be true or legitimate or worthwhile. It's both. And, and it's just been really interesting for me when I do share some of my experiences that are less, um, whatever the word normal. would be, less normal, <laughs> quote unquote, then you find these people, a lot more people, are open to it or interested or have actually had their own similar experiences. Yes. And I think travel really brings this out in us. Uh, every time I go to Ireland, I have the most uncanny. That's when like the veil is thinner there for me. I love that expression. You know? I also. mean, I'm clearly of Irish heritage, so perhaps that's part of the reason. But when I go there, it's just, it's, it's just flat out strange. Yeah. And, and I have two stories out about Ireland, about that. And, and when I've read them, it opens up to people because, you know, I've also had these experience in f- these types of experiences in France and Spain. I'm not Spanish or French, but, um, you know, where you can't even pretend like it's normal. Right. Right. You know, I do. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So along those lines, let's go back to Spain. And I would like you to tell me about one of those experiences that just happened on your last trip. Ah, yeah. And I don't know anything about this experience. <laughs> you just mentioned it in the, in the run up to the show. So mm-hmm. it's not like I know what you're going to talk about, but I know that you said you had a wild experience in the Santa Semana Santa. I assume this was in Granada. Maybe it was yes, someplace else Granada, down there. Yes. So, and it was somehow related to Lorca, I believe. Well, yeah. You know, or just you, just when you, you tell me when you yeah. go out, you know, be careful what you wish for, because when you go somewhere seeking Duende, you always find it. OK. And how did but, you find it in um, Semana Santa? <laughs> well, I went back to Granada after my other travels in Spain. I was on my own and I had this experience that I have come to believe is is really essential for us to have as humans and it's the kind of experience that I used to avoid at all costs. So it was evening and I was heading out for dinner and I it was the week before Easter and um, I had been sort of hanging out with my filmmaker the week before and he had taken me into a cathedral in Nerha and shown me these huge thrones that they you know, they take like 50 men or 30 men to carry these. They call them thrones, but they're really like gigantic floats with uh, like statues of the Virgin Mary and statues of Jesus and all these candles and flowers. And so I had seen these thrones. So this was the week before Easter. It was Palm Sunday and I was just walking on the street and I saw that there was a huge, huge crowd gathering and I could hear a band playing. So I thought, oh yeah, there's a parade. And so I came up and there was this beautiful, beautiful band playing 
uh, just gorgeous music. And then after that are these women, and they're all dressed, dressed in black, and they have those tall mantillas. I'm not going to say this correctly, mantillas, mantilla. I'm not mantilla, sure. Well, if it's, if it's M-A-N-T-I-L-L-A, yes, mantilla. Mantilla yeah. with the lace, and they have lace gloves, and they're beautiful, and they all are holding candles, and they're marching, and then these little kids are in the altar outfits, and... Um, and I'm Catholic, and so they also had incense, and I started feeling, um, you know, I say that I'm a lapsed Catholic, and I'm not religious, but I, so I started feeling spiritual in spite of myself, because clearly this was from a church. And then, uh, then comes the throne, which, is, which moves, they're just gigantic, with all these candles, and they move in this unusual sort of jerking way because the men are underneath carrying it. So that came next. And then came the drumming. And it was intense, intense, kind of scary vibration of drumming. And I was like, whoa. And I looked down the street and there were hundreds. And these are now, these are all different colors. But this evening it was white of men in pointy hooded robes <laughs> yes. with holes for eyes. Yes. And my whole entire body, every cell in it, clashed with this. Because I was feeling like it was beautiful and smelling the incense and listening to the music. Carried and, away. And suddenly it just it just um like my it was like body jarring. it was like, like an electric shock. And I realized, well, you know, Spain was here quite a while before the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and so, you know, I started separating those concepts. But I ended up following these processions. There were numerous processions every night, I think five or six, and they walk around the city for seven hours. When they get back to their cathedrals at midnight, they have a full mass um, but I couldn't get enough of it. Purple robes, red robes, uh, little kids in the hoods with, you know, little kids in the hoods with just eyes for holes. And it was, the clash w was there because of my own bias. And I think that, you know, many people travel and they try to stay away from that. And I think I did at first. But the same thing happened to me the first time I went to Morocco. And, you know, in my anthologies and in my stories, it's all about that transformation thing. There's this gorgeous piece that I was so happy to have permission to use from Paul Bowles in the Morocco book called Baptism of Solitude. And he talks about going out into the Sahara and how it works on him. And he says a strange, by no means pleasant process of reintegration occurs inside of you. Mm -hmm. And to mm -hmm. me, that's what travel is all about. Yep. It's yep. Th that feeling of clash, 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 shock, where you see your own biases and you see your own colored glasses that you wear all the time. That's called growth. Well, then you take them off and you integrate what yes. you've seen. 
after yes. the shock, after yes. the electrical shock, yes. after the jar, yes. after whatever, right. And the whole week in Granada, I just kept going and doing that and going and doing that. And it just felt, I almost felt like I was a plant growing. That's exactly, like, I was going to say, you could feel yourself yeah. growing. It was yeah. so exhilarating. Yeah. yeah. You know? I love that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about writing specifically. And, and, and this is still going to be very much on topic because you have a quote. There are two things in particular that you said about writing and the stuff that I was reading about you that I really liked. And one of them is very much related to what we just have been discussing. Quote, for me, reading and writing have always been inextricable from travel. So uh, but the other thing you added there, actually, I want to add one more thing that I also loved. Um, quote, I avoid letting my identity as a travel writer, author, filmmaker, or teacher eclipse my quest as a traveler. So why this inextricable link and why do you end up prioritizing this, the traveler? Insofar as if you've got to choose one identity, you're, you're really holding on to that and realizing that the other ones are sort of secondary. The link, I think, has to do with daydreaming. Because when I, when I was growing up, I read all the time and I read things like the hound of the Baskervilles on pain of your life. Do not go out onto the moor, you know, and then, and then when I went to England and the fog came in just like it did, I mean, it just like, it, it's like daydreaming and then having it come true in some sense. Mm -hmm. And it's always linked for me because if I ever read about a place, I start daydreaming about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, so the other question about the identity. Yes. Um, I think we always have to be seekers, not finders. And sometimes even just the act of writing a story makes you feel like you found something. And, um, I don't like, I don't think you can soak up the essence of a place when you are full of that feeling. I also think that we in this country, I mean, I'm on a bit of a riff here because I'm having this incredible reverse culture shock, but I feel like we're, we're really obsessed with our own image and I, I like to say often that I'm afraid sometimes that with our posting and proclaiming and pictures that we are robbing the places we travel to of the chance to beguile us mm. and we are robbing ourselves of the experience of being charmed. Mm, I love that. Yep. So in other words, when you set foot in a place, if you're already posting how you love it, you don't even have a chance to fall in love with it. To me, it's become largely about consuming that place. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. I just want to get there. I want to check it off my yes. list. I've seen this picture of Iceland and yeah. all my friends' Instagrams. Yes. I want to show that I was there too. Yes. Versus what you're saying, maybe I want to spend a day with that waterfall and I want to paint it or I want to write it or I just want to sit there and, and just listen to it and enjoy it. Maybe I'll post a picture later, yes. but that's not my motivation yes. necessarily for being there and for or, really experiencing it. Or also this idea of us in the place, you know, <laughs> one of, one of my earliest trips, um, it took, we took our family to Stonehenge 
And I was really concerned with getting a really great picture for the Christmas card. So I'm like, you know, stand here, do this, do that. And we have this picture, <laughs> Merry Christmas from Stonehenge. Uh-huh. And all you can see of Stonehenge is like this little gray corner <laughs> behind my son Kellen's shirt. Uh-huh. And and after that experience, I really, I was like, oh my gosh, how, how weird is that i wasn't exactly prioritizing <laughs> myself as the traveler yeah i had some other priorities yeah that and, uh, yeah and i also just feel like that you know when you when you are i mean this happens when you're not traveling but for me it happens more often often when i'm traveling is i realize my own insignificance particularly when i'm doing a lot of studying of the history of places and i think that is our right perspective mm-hmm the mm-hmm. right perspective of human beings on this earth is not in the center of a selfie. It's as a speck on a lion in Hyde Park in London. Like, or I know. have to say that you have some amazing selfies. I've seen a <laughs> lot of your selfies and they are amazing. Like I've actually taken pointers. I've looked at some of your selfies and I thought, wow, selfies? I can do better. I can yeah. do better. Really? <laughs> I don't actually, I don't know if you've ever, I don't, think I I don't really have any selfies. Them. I don't no, think I have a I, single selfie. I don't, I don't really take them. Maybe I know. there are pictures that other people No, I'm kidding. I haven't seen a single, <laughs> a single selfie from you. Okay, so <laughs> oh I want to move on because this is really interesting as well. And I want to make sure we kind of touch on quite a few of your different things that you have going on because you have so much going on and so much of it is very interesting to me. Uh, film. So we just talked about, we've talked a lot about travel, spirituality, writing. Uh, I want to talk about film and specifically your films, of course. Your previous film, The Story Keeper, is, I think it's 24 minutes. Yes. Is that right? 24 it's minutes a long short. short. <laughs> it's a long short yes. that continues to be featured in film festivals six years after its release. Yes. So that is crazy. Congratulations. Yeah. Because you. usually these things run their course. I mean, yeah. there's so much new stuff out mm-hmm. there. So the fact that you're still out there six mm-hmm. years later is incredible and a testimony to the work, which I was very um, fortunate to see this week. Thank you very much. You're I found welcome. the story inspiring, interesting, touching. Um, but can people see The Story Keeper? Or you have to see it in festivals? Uh, you have to see it. We had to take it off. We had it on for a little while when I uh, launched Wings, and then we had to take it off because people were asking to show it, and we can't have it online if people are showing it. Oh, yeah, because it kind of takes away yeah. from, yeah, yeah people yeah, aren't yeah. going to go if they can just go yes. watch it on YouTube yes. or Vimeo yes. or whatever it is. Okay, so that's your previous film, or one of your previous films, uh, but let's talk about the upcoming film, Siesta. <laughs> it's a full-length <laughs> independent film with your uh, longtime collaborator, fourth time collaborator. I don't know if I'm going to say his name right. Is it is it Roger? Or is it really Roger? Ro- Roger. Roger. I, I just call him Roger. Bick Kalkun. Yes. Kalkun. I don't know yes. how that was. Um, practicing for my Danish pronunciation, which will be in the next segment, yes. uh, even though, of course, that's Dutch. Uh, so give us a quick synopsis about uh, about the subject. What's it about? Okay. Yep. We have, we have had this film in our collective hoppers for about uh let's see eight years now oh wow timothy peels is a very uptight american stockbroker, and he travels to this tiny village in spain Frigiliana, and the spanish culture chafes at him and he butts up against it so some some familiar themes we were just talking about yes and he and and it slowly it's he slowly has opportunities to change, but there are some very Roger. Mm-hmm. He lives in Spain. He's Dutch, but he lives in Spain. And oh, he so, does. Okay. Uh, he's become, in Andalusia. 
Yes, mm-hmm. he's become intimately acquainted with Spanish culture. And so there are particular things about a small village in Spain that we would like to bring out in the film. Uh, the siesta is, is the main Importantissimo. thing. Mm-hmm. But um, there are, for example, in these little villages, there are a group of old men. They're the ones with the power in the village. They're known as the parliament. They're the ones everyone goes to for advice. They're the ones who sort of orchestrate the main events. And so there's this awesome group of old men in the in the film who, you know, first they try to take Timothy under their wings and then he sort of repels them and, you know, and there's also a flamenco dancer who tries to get him to loosen up, tranquillo, you know. Um, so we spent a week in this, little village for Hiniana, kind of going around and making this film come to life because it's already written as a short and we just decided we wanted to turn it into a full length feature and do it independently. He's just done his first um, independent film. It's called Anderson and the Gin. It's about Hans Christian Anderson meeting a a gin. Yeah. yeah. Which a is like a spirit. Gin. A female yeah. gin. Yeah. A so, spirit for those who don't yeah. know. So, um, so anyway, yeah, the characters were just there. It'll be very easy to turn it into a, f- a full-length feature. It just will take a little time. But mm-hmm. so, um, where are you in the process then? So well, you said I mean, you were we just have there. the whole. The short film is written, so we just had to kind of flesh it out. It's I'm doing the screenplay, and then he'll do the filming stuff. And so, um, we have the outline finished when we were there. You know, basically when I was there, I just followed Timothy around. <laughs> Like uh-huh. watched him do these things, and uh-huh. you know he tripped over the cobblestones. And so wait, Timothy's a real person, or you watched him in your he's in my your creative character. your character? He was right. about as real right. as anybody. Right. You know, so, so for example, one of the things that that happened when we were there is the weather was oddly lousy that uh-huh. particular time in Spain, and in this little village, it, it's it's you know late afternoon. It started raining. Everyone in the village. Everyone in the village closed up shop, went inside and made fires with this fragrant, <laughs> lovely, lovely scented wood. I know because it's almond and olive oh and pine wood. Oh my gosh. And so you just walk around this vacant village. And so, of course, you know, in a particularly difficult moment, this happens to Timothy and he's up by himself. And actually the, our, our one of the most exciting things that we want to do in this film is make the audience smell oh. that firewood. Nice. <laughs> if you could do that, you've got a hit on your hands. That is, that is the goal. Because you know? when I was in Mallorca yeah. finishing my novel, uh, which I have to tell you another awesome yes. synchronicity about my novel uh, that I just discovered last night when I was preparing for today. But first, I'll tell you about the wood. So when I was on Mallorca finishing my novel, I it was, it was I don't know, January, February. So it was still very cold mm-hmm. and there were no tourists or anything. It was, so I was just me in this village. Everyone was gone. It was the smallest village on Mallorca. Anyway, I had to get firewood because that was the only way to heat the house. And so I went down to town. I went to the hardware store where they had the firewood. And yeah, and they brought me on this special little truck that was this miniature truck because it had to be small to get on these little country roads, sure, yeah. right? And these windy mountain country mm-hmm. roads. And it had this special little crane uh, for firewood. And they delivered this massive, I don't know how many cords it would be or whatever our measurement is for firewood, but that's exactly it. It was a mix of pine, olive, and uh 
pine, olive, and almond wood. And it smelled so good. (laughs) Yeah, it smelled so good. And so I would just mix each of the three kinds of woods, you know, to, to, or each three kinds of wood to get that. But the other thing I wanted to say with regards to the synchronicities, uh, which we started this whole thing off with, because that's the whole reason I, you know, like I said, I went up to to chat with you after I uh, saw you speak. But uh, so my novel takes place just a few villages over. So my novel oh. takes place in Canillas de Acetuno, oh which is just a few villages over from Frigiriana. Ah. And mine is further inland and it's higher up in the mountains. Wow. But I was looking at the map and it, it would take an hour to get there because of the mountains. Yes. But as the crow flies, it's like a 15 minute. So oh, we're, we're in the same yes. neighborhood. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. And I have a scene in my novel where the rains come down oh. and it's kind of all about what you just described. Oh my so gosh. anyway, so we need to some nice synchronicities. Yeah, we, we got to recreate the, the firewood. Yeah. And um, if you get lazy and just want to take the text about the raining <laughs> from my novel, you're more than welcome to do it. I'll give you the rights to that. Uh, but okay, so we're, we're almost out of time here, though. So let me see. Uh, we have like three more minutes. Uh, so... That's the film. Looking forward to hearing more about that. The thing I, I would really like you to mention, though, you just had this this honor and this exciting new project has sort of fallen into your lap, or I don't know, maybe you pursued it, but um, travel writing and photography curator of the Creative Process Exhibition. So you can just give us a high-level overview of what that is, because that sounds very exciting. It is very exciting. The Creative Process Exhibition was started by writer and artist Mia Funk, and she lives in in Paris and it was launched at the Sorbonne and she first did interviews with a hundred writers and they're you know Joyce Carol Oates, George Saunders, Hilary Mantel, Dave Eggers, writers and thinkers so Noam Chomsky is in there so basically you know really a hundred of the best writers of our day and so she did these interviews and then she started branching out and having other writers kind of analyze the interviews are so so incredible like they just inform my writing every time i read one mm-hmm. you can find them on the website oh they're already uh, up and they're available creativeprocess.info you can find a lot it. of them they yes. were published she had them published in places like the paris review and tin house and so the interviews are out there but she put them together with, she's she's just an incredible, incredible artist. And she put the interviews together with these artworks and it's, it's a huge exhibit. And so she, uh, she came to my Wings launch at Shakespeare and Company when I launched it in Paris and I met her and then we have been exchanging creative ideas. And she had two of my pieces in the their exhibit at Leuven University in Belgium at the European Conference for the Humanities, which was last month. And so she invited me to be the travel writing and photography curator. And so I've just curated my first exhibit. Congratulations. I have seven writers and three photographers. And the next places it will be at is at the 800th anniversary of Salamanca University in Spain and nice. the American University of Paris. Will you be going to any of these events in person? Uh, those are coming up soon. It's going to continue to be back, shown so. throughout the world at universities. Yeah. Um, yes. And I'm, it's an ongoing exhibit. So I just did my first sort of batch and I'm going to just continue to add to it. But uh, can I say something really fast? Please do say really okay, fast. It really, it made me feel like I did when I was a child. Every single day as a child, I read the book, The Family of Man. Uh-huh. It had all those photos from all over the world. And the, and I d- daydreamed about travel. And 
um, to put this together with these gifted, gifted photographers and writers from all over the world. It's just been fabulous. So exciting. And what an honor. And I cannot wait to check that out. Um, We are out of time. So I just want to make sure upcoming events. When's the next Lit Wings for those who are local to the Bay Area? Lit Wings is September 19th. I have writer Francis Stroh of the memoir Beer Money. Uh, Photographer Tanya Amochiev, who was here last week, right? Yes. And this filmmaker, Hervé Cohen, uh, he, he did this film, film called The Underground where he followed people around in the subway throughout the world and kind of gives you stories of individual people. It's oh, awesome. Nice. Sounds you can cool. find yeah. him online. You can find him online as well. Yes. All right. Uh, I just want to mention your links and then we have to do a station ID and uh, some ads to keep the station up and running. E-burn with an E.com. That's E-B-Y-R-N-E.com. Of course, that'll be on my website. Creativeprocess.info is the exhibition uh, that Aaron is now curating. Lit Wings is on Facebook. There's not a Lit Wings site, right? No, it's, it's coming it's, up. Oh, it is coming up. Okay, so there'll be a Lit Wings yes, website. Right yes. now it's on Facebook. Mm-hmm. And for those who are local to San Francisco Bay Area and or Paris. And uh, I also want to mention deeptravelworkshops.com. Aaron, I loved having you here today. And I can't wait to have you back again because we have lots more to talk about. Thank you. All right, Thank thanks you. for being here. Thank you, Matthew.